0: Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm Don Mills.
1: And I'm David Campbell.
0: Another in our entrepreneurial series, uh, uh, you know, uh, with a conversation with Rob Steele, the CEO of the Steele Auto Group. A very interesting story, right, David? Uh, and, and probably not as well known, uh, 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 again, to most people uh, as, as it should be. Um, yeah. I think everybody would be familiar with Harry Steele and Newfoundland Capital, of course, and the success that he had. Uh, but uh, Rob is his own man. And, uh, you know, uh, he's built a, an amazing portfolio of car dealerships and, uh, and a big business. Told us that his revenue was slightly under $3 billion a year. He's got nearly 3,000 employees, of which 2,500 work in Atlantic Canada. And uh, he represents 35 different brands of cars. So, you know, he's a consolidator, and he continues to be a consolidator. Uh, he already ranks in the top five in Canada, and I'm pretty sure that if he keeps going, he's going to go up that uh, up that chain.
1: Yeah, I mean, to put it into perspective, he's like the Sobeys. Of the auto dealership uh, sector in Canada, right? He's one of the largest, mm. the top five in Canada, but based in uh, Nova Scotia, based in this region. So, very, very impressive growth story, as you say, almost three billion dollars in sales, nearly three thousand employees. Got business in Texas, so so uh, just a very you know growth-oriented entrepreneur and a good story for for about entrepreneurship in our region.
0: And a couple of things that I just want to mention that he brought up and, I, and deserves uh, mentioning. Obviously, you know, he learned a lot of lessons from his father, um, and he worked with his father closely for a number of years. Obviously, he didn't join the, the family firm, as they say, until he was nearly 40. Uh, so he had his own uh, career track prior to that. Uh, but he also mentions the, the role his mother had, uh, who was also entrepreneurial, especially in the real estate uh, business. And, th- and that's a story actually that I actually hadn't heard before. So that was a uh, very interesting The impact of his mom as well. The other thing I would say is this, is that uh, Rob probably doesn't get uh, the credit he deserves while he worked with Newfoundland CAP because he came in and he was appointed eventually CEO of that company. But he's the one who built the portfolio of uh, radio uh, licenses to 100 and then um, you know ended up selling that to Stingray for half a billion dollars, I think in 2018. You know He was be- behind that growth and it was under his leadership that that happened. At the same time, he's working on his auto portfolio as a sideline. So he operated the public company, had the private company on the side. And, and you know it, it was growing that and then that became obviously his entire his entire focus and he's obviously you know been very successful uh, as a consolidator of dealership so like he he's a great entrepreneur in his own right and and i think he deserves a little bit more recognition in our region for the things that he's accomplished in his career uh, not just as a part of his father's you know company newcap
1: well, Don, like you, he was inducted into the Nova Scotia Business Hall of Fame. And I don't know if you folks have all have like a secret handshake, but uh, you know, <laughs> he was recognized that way.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I, I, you know, just a, a couple of comments personally about Rob. I've known him for, you know, a while. Uh, you know, he's a very um, a generous uh, um Giver in, in our community supports a lot of uh, a lot of community causes. Um, a lot of it behind the scenes, quietly. Uh, as most successful people uh, I find do in our region, they give back to the communities in which they become successful. And you know, I, I want to recognize that. I talk about it a lot. Uh, the business community does not get the credit it deserves for the work it does in building better communities through their philanthropic. Uh, contributions and and and, and efforts so you know he's been uh, he's been very uh, important uh, to our community uh, in that regard as well and the other thing is that you know like he is one of the most interesting guys that you want to meet you know, like he has a wide range of interests he, he's a I've known him uh, for his interest in music for a long time obviously he has interest in you um, in history, a little bit with his purchase of Evil Knievel's yacht, uh, he's got an interest in, in cars. He, you know, set up a museum um, to, to share, uh, you know, um, his, uh, his his cars with the the, the public. You know, he's, he's just a really interesting guy um, uh, to know. So, uh, with that uh, brief introduction, here's our uh, very interesting conversation with Rob Steele, the CEO of the Steele Auto Group. We are pleased to welcome Rob Steele, the CEO of the Steele Auto Group, to the Insights Podcast. Welcome, Rob, to the podcast.
2: Good day, gentlemen. How are you? Very We're, good. We're great. Yeah.
1: So let's begin by talking about your father, the legendary Harry Steele, who became an entrepreneur in his 40s after a career in the military and founded Newfoundland Capital. Right. Can you tell us about your dad and his efforts to build that company. How did he get his start in business, and what were some of the key milestones in building uh, Newfoundland Capital?
2: Well, well, Dad was in the uh, he was in the in the in the military. He was a naval officer, and um, uh, right up until his mid forties, when he retired, and uh, he, you know, being in the military is kind of almost uh, the antithesis of, 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 of grooming to be an entrepreneur. Because, you know, you really learn to, I guess, mitigate or not take risks, you know. But uh, he had an interest in business. Uh, it wasn't always evident. As a kid growing up, I didn't sort of, you know, have a sense that, you know, business was uh, was part of the kind of the, uh, his world or, or, my, uh, or my mom's, really. You know, we were military kids. And, uh, you know, uh, he did a, when I was born here in Halifax and... Uh, um, and then he, uh, he, uh, he took a, uh, a post in, uh, in Washington, D.C. He became a military attaché. He worked for the, I forget what it was, the predecessor to CESIS in uh, Washington, D.C. But um, uh, prior to me uh, being born, my, my older brother, uh, four years older than me, dad was, uh, dad and mom did a stint in Europe, in, uh, in, in Britain, uh, uh, then Cornwall, Ontario. And then uh, here in Halifax, and uh, and he ended his career in uh, uh, actually ultimately Gander, near Newfoundland. So um, he, uh, of course, you know uh, uh, when he was looking when he was uh, nearing retirement, um, he had spent 23 years in the military, and uh, the unification program at the time, which meant they were they were doing away with the independent uniforms, so they were going to have the you know, this, the, the homogenous uniform for all the military. That really irked my father. And uh, he t- he opted for uh, early retirement. So he didn't go the full 25 years. He, he got out at 23, 23 years. So he didn't get his full pension. But uh, uh, he and my mom were looking to do something uh, post military because they're relatively young. They're they early in the mid 40s. And uh, my mom at that time, this was in Gander, Newfoundland. Uh, my mom at that time was um, she. She was uh, she was an entrepreneur. She uh, she had a real interest in real estate, and uh, and she uh, would build houses in Gander, and there was quite a demand for housing. Uh, Gander was at that point in time was uh, an international had the international airport, and there was a lot of activity in the town of Gander. Um, and she would build houses and sell them, and uh, that was. She did a number of those uh, up until my dad's retirement. And then they had it in their head that they would, uh, they would try to get into commercial real estate uh, of some kind, like apartment buildings. That's, that's what my mom wanted to do. And, uh, and dad was on side. And uh, they, uh, they went to the bank uh, to try to get a loan uh, to purchase this apartment building again in Newfoundland. It was a modest apartment building. I forget how many units. And the bank manager at the time uh, said, uh, "said Harry, why don't you why don't you look at this hotel that we have? Uh, mm-hmm. The hotel, the bank had uh, foreclosed on a, on a on a hotel, a 48 room motel called the Albatross in Gander, Newfoundland. And uh, my mom and dad were kind of well, we don't know anything about the hotel business, and I don't think we can afford that. But uh, it was a relatively modest sum, and the bank was keen to get rid of it." So uh, they, they mortgaged the property, and uh, my folks ended up uh, going uh, full tilt, right, uh, full committal on this uh, 48-room hotel. Dad retired from the Navy. And uh, Mom was more or less the operator, and Dad was, uh, his role was more to try to drum up business for the hotel. And, of course, at that point in time in Gander, there was uh, East River Mitchell Airways was headquartered in Gander, owned by the Crosby or controlled by the Crosby family. Uh, EPA was actually publicly traded, but the uh, the majority of control uh, uh, was uh, was in the in the Crosby family. Um, Andrew Crosby, in particular, was uh, I think he was the uh, I don't know what his title was at the time, but uh, he was he was active in in that airline, which meant all the crews would stay in Gander, uh, and of course at that time they were staying at the Hotel Gander. Um, which was a competing hotel to the one that my folks had taken over. And my dad called on the airline and, you know, uh, lobbied Crosby and uh, the president of uh, the airline at the time. His name is Keith Miller, an Australian guy. And uh, and he was successful in redirecting that business to the hotel, uh, which meant he had a baseline of business and uh, at the hotel. And uh, the thing really took off for them. And, uh, he struck up a friendship with Crosby and with Keith Miller and, uh, and Miller offered him a job as the marketing, VP of marketing for the airline. So he took that job, went, uh, as VP of, of, marketing for the airline. My mom ran the hotel and after, uh, a little over a year, my dad was kind of disgruntled with the airline. He felt it was poorly run, et cetera, et cetera and uh he uh he uh had an idea to try to take over the airline to take you know take a controlling share it was publicly traded so he uh he was able to amass you know uh, buy shares himself for the Borgie in the hotel whatever assets he had they didn't have a lot um, but ultimately he was able to get uh, uh enough to to take over the airline and uh the rest they say is history that was really the genesis of uh, of how his whole career started it was through that airline that became kind of the uh, the rocket ship to his entrepreneurial career
0: i have to tell you rob that i actually stayed in the albatross hotel i think it was in the 80s i think that's probably when he Probably got involved if I'm not mistaken. It was around that period of time, right?
2: Yeah, he was. Uh, he, he actually was 19. To, the, the the Albatross. He purchased. They purchased the hotel in the early 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Right. Um, and
2: uh, uh, and I think it was 74 that he became the, uh, VP of marketing for the for the airline. Okay. Yeah.
1: Hmm. So, Rob, when did you begin working with your father and? Tell us what it was like working with him.
2: Uh, let me see. I didn't actually work with my father until I was thirty-nine years old. Um, I'm sixty-two now. Uh, I, uh, I I elected to go a bit of a different route. I uh, you know I got into the car business uh, in my twenties, late twenties, and um, and I toiled away at that. Of course, I'm still in the auto business. Um, and my father wanted me to uh, to, to work with him, um, uh, you, know, uh, to, you know, at NewCap at that point in time, which was a holding company. I'm getting ahead of myself because it's quite an evolution to get to um, at where NewCap was at that point in, in my father's career. But it was really wasn't until my late 30s at uh, 39 is when I I, uh, I went to NewCap as a CEO. Did you
1: guys work well together? How was that relationship? Yeah, we did.
2: Yeah, we worked really well together. My father, uh, despite his reputation, is not a, a real control kind of kind of guy. He uh, he lets you. Uh, he uh, you know he gave me uh, you know he gave me a lot of uh, a lot of elbow room, a lot of things to do what I, I thought needed to be done. And I'm sure if he you know like any father, if he if he felt I was headed for a cliff, he probably would have you know <laughs> would have held me back, but. Uh, he uh, he was great to work with.
0: So uh, I want to ask you this question, Rob. What were the key lessons about life and business that you learned from your father? And got... my mother.
2: She, she played a big and role. And your mother, too. yes, obviously. Um, yeah. Um, well, you know, there's a lot. I think, uh, you know, and I think the lessons of business are, 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 are very similar, despite the size of whatever business, you know, the dynamics and, and the rules of business, the game of business are very much similar, you'll find a lot of, a lot of commonality uh, that people can relate to uh, that are running businesses, that are involved in business. But uh, my father was very big on um, uh, what well, he always called it, putting the time in. Um, some people call it you know, pursuing your passion or whatever, but at the end of the day, you have to be willing to put in a lot of time into whatever mm-hmm. it is you're doing. And the only way you really do that is if you like something and you're good at something. Usually, they go hand in hand. If you're good at something, you, you, you'll probably learn to like it, which means that time, then you, you don't mind putting in the time. If it's something you really don't like, it's hard to, to chin up and put in the necessary uh, commitment time that's required to make something successful. That was probably the key lesson. I mean, I'm, off the top of my head, I, I have to think, probably as we chat through this podcast, I'll think of some more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You became president and CEO of Newfoundland Capital, I think in 20, 2002, and under your leadership, you grew the number of radio licenses owned by the company to more than 100 licenses under the NewCap radio brand. Um, did that make you the largest radio licensee in Canada at the time, by the way?
2: It did, yeah, yeah, it did. We weren't uh, we we weren't the largest by revenue, uh, but we were the largest with a number of
0: stations. Mm-hmm. Yeah and and, and and just how did you get in the radio business initially? Can you just tell us that story?
2: Yeah uh, my father got into it uh, in 1985. Now it, it, going back to the airline um, he had the, mm-hmm. he, uh, he actually sold the airline in 1982 but at the time back in the uh, I think it was the late 70s 70, 79 or 80 uh, Merv Russell uh, dad yeah. hired Merv Russell a uh, well-known radio personality, uh, uh and, and, uh, great guy, uh, to work with him in the airline. And, uh, and, and Merv did for a couple of years. He lived in Gander and he always touted the virtues of the, the, you know, the, uh, always trying to sell my father on, 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 getting into the radio biz cause it was such a great business. And he was right. And ultimately they, uh, they found, uh, um, an opportunity, uh, an AM station in, in Charlottetown was the, was the first one that my father bought for NUCAP, right. Capital Corporation. Um, and that was an AM station, like I say, in, in CHTN in, uh, in Charlottetown. That was the very first one. Yeah. But it was very much, uh, uh, radio wasn't the focus of NewCap. That was kind of a pet project, I think MERS pet project. Right. Um, my dad was involved at, uh, you know, NewCap was a holding company. For various businesses he was in the uh, newspaper business he had a ferry terminal and come back what else Clark transport um, you know heavy haul of trucking um, you know various businesses haul term he had a, uh, I think a third of haul term at that point in time yeah so uh, he, he dad was very much a deal guy he liked he liked doing deals and he, he wasn't really uh, sector he was uh, he was uh, uh, you know, agnostic in terms of uh, of what sectors they were. He didn't care. He just loved business and doing deals.
0: Yeah. Uh, Apparently, you do too, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably where I
2: learned. That's where I learned, I think,
0: probably. (laughs) I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, your pet project in in 2018, in 2018, Stingray, best known for its commercial free music streaming services. Yeah, yeah. Purchased uh, Newfoundland Capital for over $500 $500 million. So that pet project turned out pretty well, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that, but that must have been a, a bittersweet moment for you. I know you're a music guy as an yeah. example. So yeah. what led to the decision to sell the company, Rob? Um,
2: well, you know how it is, Don. There's always a moment in time when, when, when you should sell something. And, and, you know, buying and selling is always a – these are always judgment calls you make along the journey. And uh, mm. I, I tend to think of myself more as a, a buyer than, a, than a mm-hmm. sell it, but uh, mm-hmm. I think at that point in time, um, there's an opportunity to to sell the entire company, uh, which is which is significant because if you looked at the potential buyers for our company, there was nobody within the industry that could buy the entire portfolio without being conflicted. That would be the other right. broadcasters, right? And Stingray, or um, in the digital media space. But they weren't in traditional broadcast. So they they were able to buy the entire portfolio. And uh it was it, it was I think it was just time, it was the right decision at the time. Right. I have no regrets for doing that, you know. Yeah.
1: So Rob, were either of your two brothers, John and Peter, involved in the company?
2: Yes, yeah. My uh my uh younger brother, John, uh he ran Newf- the Newfoundland uh, part of our portfolio. Which was significant. It was uh, it was about ten percent of our revenue. Uh, and okay. in, in
1: yeah. Uh, we want to talk to you about, of course, about your auto dealership business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have here that you've purchased your first auto dealership more than thirty years ago. But you just indicated earlier you were involved in the sector even younger than that, in your twenties. Now yeah. the steel auto group has more than 60 dealers representing 32 different car brands I, I know your name is on the back side of my car oh yeah That's good my, my <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the business how many new vehicles uh, would you sell in a typical year any, any other sort of pertinent information about about the business uh,
2: yeah I got into the, build, the first dealership I think it was um, I think it was 28 in the, the first dealership that I bought. I bought it, I had two, I, there was three of us. I had two other partners in the, in the, in the initial dealership. Um, I mean, I would, I, would always, I would always like cars and uh, uh, prior to getting that dealership, um, Red McKean, a uh, newspaper guy from New Glasgow and myself partnered on the auto trader franchise mm-hmm. for Atlanta Canada. And uh, we toiled away at that with some success. Uh, you know, when I was, I started, I think 22, three, I think when I partnered with, with, with red. And so I knew a lot of the formula with the auto trader back then, of course, is a pre-digital. It was all just, uh, print. And, uh, the formula was you had, uh, commercial ads and you had private ads, and then you had, um, you just had this, what they call display, which is, you know, uh, uh, you know, just it could be hairdressers or whoever wanted to advertise in the magazine, um, and uh, through that process, I got to know a lot of. I got uh, rubbing shoulders with a lot of car dealers selling the ads. Uh, that, that's that was really my introduction to the car business, and that's where the opportunity availed itself. Uh, the Chrysler dealership, the first one that I got involved with.
0: Yeah, so how many autos would you sell in this region? Let's just talk about this region because I know you're outside yeah. the region. But how many yeah. in this region would you sell in a typical normal year?
2: Um, I'd have to look, John, the uh, exact numbers. But if you're looking at wholesale, retail and everything, you know, you're it's around 40,000.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, so that's a big share of the market, isn't it?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, we run a Canada. We would uh, we'd be the biggest consolidator.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And just uh, for our listeners, uh, do you have dealerships throughout Atlantic Canada, or yes, yeah,
2: every places? province,
0: every province, uh-huh. yeah, and you basically cover the full gamut, thirty-two brands. <laughs> yeah, can't be yeah, we have everything. Busy much,
2: <laughs> we have everything except the super luxury, like Ferrari. We don't have Ferrari or Lamborghini, and the only mainstream brand that we don't represent is BMW. Right. Which is a great brand. I'd love to have a BMW franchise. It's just for whatever reason, it's, it's never really uh, that opportunity has never uh, become yeah. available to us.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. So yeah. can so, I ask you,
1: know, you? Can I just sorry, yeah, go John. Ahead. I want to jump in. Yeah. Can I ask you? Are there economies of scale? Like, what's the what's the what's the advantage to sort of buying up all of these different dealerships? Is that pretty common across? That's the a great country? question, David. There, there really
2: uh, well there are, but not in the sense of. Uh, not not in the traditional sense that you would think. For example, uh, the OEM—that's uh, acronym for original equipment manufacturer—which are the the franchisors like uh, Toyota or Honda or Ford. Um, any dealer it doesn't matter if it's a dealer in Amherst or a dealer in Saint uh, Anthony, Newfoundland. Uh, their cost to acquire is no different than mine, or or a dealer in Toronto or a dealer in Calgary. So we buy the identical wholesale price for that car, regardless of how many dealerships you have. Mm. So even though you have scale and, you know, you represent, you know, for example, we represent seven or eight Honda dealerships. Our acquisition cost is identical to, you know, to any other Honda dealer in Canada. So there's no benefit that way. Where there is benefit is developing systems and processes and sales processes, service processes, um, some efficiencies in administration, um, that kind of thing. That, that's really where the, the advantage is, um, and, you know, some marketing advantages. Uh, that, that's really where the, where the you know, that's where the, that's where the benefit of having size comes in.
1: But there's no volume discount? Not even, how about on the yeah. aftermarket stuff, on the maintenance, things like that? Is there any volume discount?
2: Now, well, sometimes some of the suppliers, the, the, not the OEM, the traditional OEMs, but some of the what we call aftermarket suppliers, yeah, you can get some some scale there.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I I think this is a question that it would be interesting to get an answer to. Um, uh, I think a lot of people think you make your money on selling cars, but uh, um, is there more money in servicing or financing cars than actually selling them?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. No question. I mean, generally, I mean, this is uh, you know, as, as round numbers, and the, the formula is you know, there's sixty percent in service, thirty percent in parts. Sometimes 32, 35, depending on how efficient you can make your operation. Right. Uh, and the margin on a, a new or used car sale is relatively small, right. probably in that 4% range, 4
0: or 5%. Right. right. So it doesn't give you a lot of room to dick, or does it? No.
2: But, I mean, the whole idea, though, is to get the product out there so that right. you build a big service base.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I want to ask you about the number of people that are employed within the steel auto group. How many in total do you do you have? We one? have a last
2: count. Uh, we're approaching 3,000. I think we're around 20, 2,900 at this point. Uh, wow.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a large force. Uh, and uh, of that number, how many would you consider to be head office jobs? About 50. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we're always promoting head office jobs as, you know, valuable to our economy because they bring revenue in from elsewhere, obviously. Right. Uh, so that's a, that's a pretty good number. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I get a, I get a, I get a video email from my service guy every time I, I get the car worked on with a little message on how they're working on the car and so on. Is that like a technology that you're deploying across all of your dealerships? Yeah, we
2: are. We're, we're trying to roll it out to, to every, we're almost complete, but uh, that was something that we pioneered in house. And uh, we won some awards for that, um, and it, it's very effective because people get to see; they like it. It's transparent. They get to see, uh, the, you know, what what the issue is with the vehicle, and they can uh, say yay or nay if they want to proceed with the, with the with the service.
1: Yeah, I find mm-hmm. that an incredible uh, uh, advantage over over the other dealerships. So yeah, that
2: was uh, we have some uh, great uh, people, some tech people that work in our uh, with us, and they've come up with some. Really, really genius kind of
1: stuff. So that that's an, a benefit of having all of the different dealerships. Yes, that's you're right. You're able to share those. That was be for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So we wanted to ask you a little bit about workforce issues. Uh, mm-hmm. We many of the entrepreneurs and business owners that we talked to have described the challenges recruiting staff. I, we don't know much about your sector, so can you let us know? Is it is it challenging to find qualified people? to work in the dealerships? Or are you having trouble with them on the mechanic side? Like, are you having any, any workforce challenges?
3: Yeah.
2: Mechanics right now are very, are, are very scarce. Um, people just aren't going into that profession. And, uh, uh, you know, we're really, we're, we're, we're constantly trying to recruit and, uh, you know, build, a, you know, a strong workforce of mechanics, uh, and people in general, like Salesforce, there's a fear, our industry, sadly, has a very high turnover, in, particularly in sales, and uh, um, that costs you money. You try to, the, you know, less turnover, the better, obviously. So we, we try to, again, I guess, as a as a as a consolidator, a larger company, we try to offer uh, you know benefits and, and, and things that, that keep people engaged and attracted to stay with us.
1: Do you have a centralized HR function or is that all done do. at the dealership level?
2: So you do no, that? we have a centralized HR. Yeah.
1: yeah. So uh, buying a new vehicle became quite challenging um, during and after the pandemic. There was a lot of limited inventory available and longer wait times for delivery. We're still hearing for certain vehicles, there's considerable wait times. Are you finding, though, that the supply chain issues are improving? Is it is it easier to get access to, to vehicles now mm-hmm. than it was, say, 12 months ago?
2: Somewhat, and it really depends on the brand. Um, the, the imports uh, are, are still very difficult. Hyundai, Toyota, uh, uh, but some of the some of the domestic brands, GM is getting a little better. Probably the one that's the easiest to get uh, uh, product from right now is Stellantis, which is you know Dodge, Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep. Uh, but uh, inventory is not. I don't know if it's ever going to go back to the levels. Of pre uh, pre COVID, because we learned a valuable lesson going through COVID in our industry. It, it's almost counterintuitive because we thought, like everybody, that uh, you know things were, were you know COVID was really going to just just annihilate our business. Uh, we we took dramatic measures and reduced our workforce uh, right from the get go, and, and an inverse relationship happened. It, 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 all of a sudden, there was huge demand for 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 vehicles and there was no product and uh which meant that we uh, uh you know we had we didn't have to market or our marketing costs were, were, were zero practically because everything was pre-sold that was in the pipeline and it sold at full msrp because it's a function of uh of uh of demand right and uh uh the demand was just way greater than supply so margins were high advertising was nil carrying a cost which was a huge it's called floor plan in our business so the cost of inventory on the ground is a huge cost typically uh of course we didn't have much product on the ground so there was no inventory cost so uh it was a our sector really flourished with that and the oems learned they also became very profitable because they didn't you know they didn't have to, to they were selling everything they could produce and uh um it, you know, we all learned a lesson going through through COVID. So, I think the business, our the the, the sales margins, the, tip, the dealership would typically make about three to three to and a half percent return on sales. COVID, they were as high as seven eight percent. So they they more than doubled, and um, it was it was probably the high watermark for our industry, and they still are they are still high, not at not at that level, but they I don't know if we'll ever settle back down to that 3.5%. I think it'll, it'll settle in around that 4 or
0: 4.5%. Mm. I just want to get back to the human side for a second. Uh, Kim Day is the president and COO of the Steel Auto Group. Mm. Yeah. In a male-dominated industry, it's very unusual for a woman to, a woman to hold such a senior position. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what led to her personal success, Rob?
2: Yeah, well, Kim, uh, Kim, uh, I've worked with Kim for for many years. Uh, she was the VP of Finance uh, with Newcap on the on the broadcast side, and uh, we were looking to uh, you know you got to understand I was running a public company, uh, Newcap, and simultaneously had this car business on the side, so to speak. Hmm. And uh, back in around I think it was twenty fifteen. Uh, I was looking for uh, a new finance person on the auto side and Kim, I had already worked with for 11 years on the broadcast side. Uh, she wanted to uh, work in the auto side of the business. And uh, she came over as our CFO with uh, in the auto side back in 20, I think it was 2014 or 2015. And, uh, all, and so I knew Kim for many years uh, and her ability to um, in the broadcast sector, and she flourished as CFO on the auto side as well. And, uh, the president of the auto business at that point in time was a guy by the name of Dave McRitchie, who sadly right. uh, passed away, uh, right. you know, prematurely in his fifties. And, uh, we were looking to, I was looking to, um, uh, obviously, appoint a new president and we went through, uh, the headhunting process. Uh, Kim, as my CFO, and myself would uh, sit down with the headhunters and we'd, uh, you know, sort of lay out uh, what the criteria, what we needed in a president because uh, I didn't, I didn't actually, at the time, didn't sort of see any obvious candidate internally because we were caught off guard with uh, with, with, with David's uh, untimely passing. And uh, Kim was so articulate at, at explaining uh, what it was we needed, the skill sets we needed. Uh, uh, the personality required to sort of to you know to to, to uh, integrate with our organization. That a light went on in my head as we're going through this, and I thought, geez, what is, Kim knows what's required. Why doesn't why? So I t- chatted with her. I said, Kim, why do you do it? And she hadn't thought of herself as you know leaving the finance side of it, uh, and she didn't jump at the opportunity at the beginning. I sort of had to talk her into it, but uh, I'm glad she did. Yeah.
0: No, it's it's a great story. I just want to also get back to being a consolidator in the auto industry. Um, uh, uh, give us an, an idea of where your group would rate in terms of size with other consolidators in the country. Is there any way of knowing that? to guess first of all, but you must have some sense of where you. Yeah. Play. Yeah.
2: We do the 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 industry. You know, Don is is fairly uh, uh, parochial. Like you you know the key players, pretty much North America. Um, right. Um, you know. Uh, we'd be one of the larger consolidators. Uh, in Canada, we'd be in the top five for sure. Right, um, right. You know, the largest would be, I believe, would be the Delari Group, which is a private group. Uh, they're three brothers that that, that own that. Um, and then I think the, the second largest would be Auto Canada. Right. Um, and after that, uh, you know, it's it's probably a, a fight for the third and fourth and fifth, and we're in there somewhere.
3: Right.
0: Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah.
1: Has the industry been consolidating? Is that a trend that's happening across the country? Or, or yeah, the it has, David. It has. But, you know,
2: uh, even I was looking at the stats uh, a little while ago, and I'm trying to think of uh, the number of dealers I, that are owned by consolidators. And a consolidator would be somebody that has more than, uh, you know, three, say, three dealerships. If you if you, if you uh, classify them as a consolidator, I think it's it's less than, I think it's about fifteen percent of the business. Wow. Okay. So there's still a lot of independents out there.
1: Well, we're going to ask you about growth potential later, but it sounds like there's yeah. still there's still quite a bit. Oh, there is. Uh, yeah. Do the OEMs prefer working with consolidators over over one offs in the community, or
2: they don't care one way or the other? It, it, it's evolved to that. Yeah, the OEMs do uh, now because they like uh, one is there's always uh, huge capital investment required to image these facilities um and uh and they want professional processes and and, and stuff in place And the consolidators if you have the wherewithal that's that's ultimately what you evolve to the old model of of everybody having you know if you're a ford dealer you couldn't be a chrysler dealer that's the way it was by the way back in the 90s yeah yeah you had to be a little bit sort of uh uh, clandestine or something, you know. If you had a competing brand, you know, you'd have it in your uncle's name or something. You know? <laughs> but the, the, the business has evolved; it's no longer like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, why Texas? We we understand Atlantic Canada, but why did you decide to buy up dealerships <laughs> in Texas?
2: Well, it's from my broadcast days. Um, there, I I, I I was exposed to to Texas, Austin, Texas, in particular. There's a well-known conference down there called South by Southwest, which started in the 90s. And I think the first one I went to was in 99, I think it was, which was uh, South by Southwest was in its infancy then. But they had a broadcast component to that conference. Uh, and I went to it. And I had never been to Texas before. And I was really just, uh, uh, you know, I was a, I, I was really just enthralled with the at the I just loved it. I loved the vibe, the weather, um, the music scene, the art scene. Uh, Austin was relatively small at the time. I think it was only about four hundred thousand people. Now it's close to approaching two million. It's a massive growth, but uh, and it was it was just a it was a really interesting part of the world. I just loved it, and uh, so I started um, going there afterwards, just for vacation or long weekends and that kind of thing, and ultimately. I ended up buying a place there in the mid, around 2005. Um, So it's been, it's sort of my second home. And uh, I, I, there were many opportunities over the years to get into the car business down there, but I elected not to uh, because I was focused on Atlantic Canada. And I'd always heard the horror stories about, you know, Canadians going south of the border and business dynamics, things or whatever are just different. And I wanted to avoid that. But ultimately I did decide to, Put my toe in the water, and uh, and uh, get into business there. So we have nine dealerships in Texas now. Um, they're sizable. They're large because, as you can appreciate, the, the volume of people there um, in Texas. It's a, it's a very business friendly state. Low taxes. Lots of people. Lots of people buying cars. The weather. You have not snow to deal with or anything. You know. <laughs> so there's some aspects of it that are very attractive.
1: Um, we interviewed recently Glenn Cook, the CEO of Cook Aquaculture, and they've been buying up companies in other countries, and he explained some of the challenges managing uh, international operations from New Brunswick. Can you tell us the difference between operating a dealership here in Atlantic Canada versus Texas? Are there cultural differences? Are there, are there sort of HR differences? What, 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 what have you noticed are the differences between
3: Yeah,
2: there, there really are differences. Uh, f- first off, even the, the banking system is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, uh, in our case, we, I, I still, the Bank is still our primary bank, even in Texas, um, we're in a syndication with TD and BMO, but, uh, um, is very different. Uh, in Canada, you can finance the goodwill or the blue sky portion of a business hundred percent. Uh, in the U S they don't do that, they, they, the banks will finance 50%. So you need more equity down when you're buying dealerships. Um, Culturally, uh, HR issues, I, I, there's uh, there, there's definitely a different, uh, there's a different, I don't know how to articulate this. It's a very, people don't seem to be as loyal to a company there. They keep, they, they jump companies, they, they, they move around a lot. That's what we're finding. Uh, and it's hard to stabilize your business. Now, you, bear in mind, I've only been in Texas for three years. Uh, so it's very much still a learning curve for us. Um, we started off with uh, i was like a kid in the candy store i couldn't believe how, how how lucrative the business was there but of late as we speak there there are challenges uh hr in particular keeping people uh keeping them engaged keeping them you know from from leaving um, because they it it's not hard to get a job down there it, it's uh you're, you're really it's competitive and uh, the wages are big you have to you have to pay uh, what you have to pay somebody to, to run a dealership is, uh, is, uh, is a lot more than what you have to pay here in Canada. And that's because the throughput is a lot more. The profitability per dealership is a lot higher.
0: Right. Rob, tell us about your plans for further expansion of your portfolio.
2: Uh, I want to continue to expand, and there's still lots of opportunity in Atlantic Canada. Uh, Atlantic Canada, by the way, is, is is a great place to do business. It's very... You don't get the gyrations, you don't get the, the, the you know, it's, it's very stable uh,
3: uh,
2: here. Um, you might get, you know, in hard economic times or a case like we're in now with high inflation, high interest rates, um, there are some challenges, but it's, it's really just, uh, it, it's, it's not a, it's, it doesn't fall off a cliff, it's just a, you know, it just, there might be a little bit of a dip in your business, but it's not dramatic. Uh, Texas, for example, is dramatic you know,
0: the interest rates have uh, really affected uh, sales. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just a side question. I noticed that uh, with uh, the high number of immigrant students in the Halifax market in particular, that some of the dealerships have actually hired Mandarin-speaking salespeople. Yeah, we do. We and have that. and, and, uh, and uh, so what impact has had that foreign student market had on your business? It seems like the high end side has really benefited, right?
2: Yeah, but even you know, John, even like Volkswagen and other brands are, we have that. Um, yeah, look as, as we know, I mean, Halifax in particular is becoming very diverse, and uh, you just look around, uh, you know, restaurants everywhere you go. I mean, we're we're Halifax is it kind of reminds me of Austin in a lot of ways. You know, mm. twenty years ago. Um, it's really, uh, you know, there's cranes in the sky and there's a real sense of boom here, despite the, the climate, the economic climate that we're in. And uh, uh, Atlantic Canada is, uh, is, is, is a very desirable place to be and live. Even other Canadians are moving here. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's just a great place to be, a great place to live.
0: Yeah, I'm going to come back to that a little later. I wanted to also ask you about the transition to electrical ve- electric vehicles, which is underway. Uh, how are you preparing for this transition in your own business?
2: We well, it's really interesting seeing the evolution of, of uh, electrification in our industry. If you had asked me two years ago, I would have thought, Within eight to ten years, we'd be almost entirely electric. But I no longer think that. Um, And I think it's. I think. I think the the. uh, I I think the. uh, The product or the. uh, What am I trying to say? The the battery. The technology, is not quite there yet. Battery technology. Right. Um, And so what you have is you have you know you've got these. you know, the batteries that are, uh, they don't provide enough range. Cars are very expensive. Uh, the government is really trying to push this as opposed to consumer demanding it. Uh, so Maybe. government uh, mandates versus consumer demand. There's quite a variance there. And if you look at Atlantic Canada in particular, I mean, the electric uptake is only, it's less than 4%. I think it's like 3.6, 3.7%. Hmm. Nationally it's just over seven, Uh hmm. That's not a lot. Now that's going to grow as uh, as infrastructure uh, builds across the country uh, and cost of these vehicles come down. Um, but electrification is is much slower coming than I thought. Now, the OEMs are, are backed off in recent years. They're, they're aggressive investments. Uh, in in, in fact, one
0: of your one of your manufacturers, Toyota, is not going. To electrification at all? Are they? They're going into. They
2: are their... they, well. They do. They have some. Uh, they they are going to electric, but uh, they're really focused on the hybrid hybrids,
3: technology, yeah. which I think
2: ultimately is this is the most sensible approach. It's a, it'll be an evolution. It's mm-hmm. somewhat a slower evolution to electrification, uh, and we we'll get a hybrid. The hybrids of uh, of uh, you know the plug-in PHEV they call it, mm-hmm. and uh, and the uh, and the ones where you actually don't plug in. But the motor itself creates the charges the battery and that'll sort of that does away with the the range anxiety uh as opposed to having a pure electric vehicle
0: yeah interesting enough Uh, we just we just purchased
2: there's been so much much, uh there's a lot of hype around it there's a lot of uh uh, there's a lot of politics behind it and there's a lot of uh you know the media has paid an inordinate amount of attention to it, uh, which leads you to believe that, that you know, that it's, uh, that you would almost think market share would be much higher than it really is.
0: Well, you know, that's interesting. I, I haven't heard that, uh, those uh, data points. So obviously you've already outlined some of the key challenges, but in your own preparation for that, are there, are there some things that you're doing in preparation for the day where... You know, there's going to be more electric vehicles. I, I, it seems to me you, you created a, a standalone um, electric vehicle uh, dealership. Did you not?
2: We did. And, and we and we closed it down recently, Don, uh, because. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. We, it, Breaking we, news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we had closed it down six months ago.
0: Uh, okay.
2: Yeah. And the reason was is uh, the volatility, the price volatility. You know, right. so we were a reseller of electric vehicles. So we had a, right. what we called all EV, we called it and uh uh the majority of product that we sold were were used teslas so we would acquire a teslas around north america and Mm we shipped them here to atlanta canada and then we'd we'd recondition them and then resell them the problem with that strategy is the price volatility in the electric sector is 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 is, uh, you know it's very uh it's very elastic right now Mm -hmm. you can see you know elon musk will just Decide to discount his cars ten percent. Um, right, you're seeing discounts with the traditional OEMs now. So we're sitting there with all that product, and we get caught with the like musical chairs. You know, the price just went oh, below right. our wholesale cost, and it just didn't make sense as a business. Right.
1: Does it require a, a significant difference in the mechanic training? It's a it's a fundamentally yeah. different mm-hmm. engine, right? There's a lot more less moving parts and
2: so on. There is, yeah, yeah. There's uh now the data is still being evaluated as to you know, in, in terms of maintenance on these vehicles, there's still a lot of maintenance required. Uh, there's a lot of maintenance on brakes, uh, tires. Uh, you, you really need different uh, different grade of tire for an electric vehicle because of the weight. Uh, there's a lot of weight on the roads because these vehicles are much heavier than, than ICE vehicles, internal combustion right. that, that we call ICE. Right. Um, so there, there's some challenges. Right now, I mean, people ask me and I've driven many electric vehicles and I love the uh, the acceleration and, and, and uh, Tesla in particular, I think they have a great user experience with their vehicle um, where they can do updates, you know, uh, by just over the Internet, that kind of thing. Uh, it's almost like an Apple phone or something. So uh, I think the quality of their cars, they need. Little bit of work on, on some of the quality of it. But the OEM, the experience is, and they have 50% of the market, more than that, 57, I think, mean, percent of the electric market. You take Tesla out of the equation, and the market share is virtually nil, no. you know,
1: two, 3%. Yeah. yeah, I was surprised last week I read Consumer Reports. Uh, they did their top 10 list of most unreliable cars, and most of them were
2: electric. Uh, yeah, the technology is still, like I say, it's, it's still it's still evolving. I think once we get to a point where the batteries can get, you know, you can do 500, 500 or more kilometers, five, six, seven hundred 700 kilometers, and we get the infrastructure in place uh, and price comes down, those things will happen eventually. It's coming, but it's going to take, I think, longer than we anticipated. So the current target, I think, to have to be totally electric by 2035, I believe it is, is... It's, right now look too, it would look to it would seem to be too ambitious
1: yeah and I there's think not a right. desire the oems yeah.
2: haven't got that desire because they know they're they're losing money hand over fist in that sector and uh uh i consumers you know they 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 don't want it they, they're not demanding these cars they want to pay up
1: hmm. yeah so let's let's uh shift gears here a bit uh to Pardon the pun. Uh, you are a well-deserved. Rep- you have a well-deserved reputation as a philanthropist, and have been recognized as the outstanding philanthropist of the year by the Nova Scotia Association of Fundraising Professionals. Can you tell us about any particular community or charitable causes that you uh, you support and are interested in?
2: Yeah, several, but uh, Family SOS is one that uh, that uh, that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's a local organization. I, la- I kind of like the boutique charities, the, the localized ones. Because uh, I think they're very effective, uh, not to, you know, denigrate any other, you know, the, the major ones like UNICEF or Red Cross, they're great, great organizations. Um, but I, I like it when the the contribution that you make really benefits the organization. It goes right to the organization as opposed to a lot of, you know, there's, there's professional charity fundraisers that take big fees for raising money for some of these big organizations. But... Uh, um, yeah, Family House West is one that helps families in need. Uh, that's, uh, I think it's a, a great community organization, grassroots, at a grassroots community level.
1: So you have an interest in classic cars and recently opened a classic and exotic car museum in Halifax called Steel Wheels. Yeah. What was the motivation behind that decision? And, uh. Don wrote this question. Who who has more classic cars, you or Colin McDonald? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to. Uh, I, we're, we're business partners, Colin and I, and uh, and Mickey, and, uh, and, and anyway. But uh, he likes. I think he likes the really old stuff, like the real twenties and thirties and forties.
0: He does. He does. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. Which I do too, uh, but I tend to. I, I kind of sixties, seventies, eighties. You know some of the supercars i really like from that era um what was the question again david i'm sorry well,
1: basically what uh, what's why did you set up that museum and maybe a sense of how many vehicles yeah i'll tell
2: you why it's uh that came about actually as a result of COVID. as as we all experienced going through that process of COVID, we all got shut in couldn't go anywhere and i i found myself uh, reviving my interest in vehicles and cars you know when you're in the sector you kind of get you re, it; just becomes a commodity after a while, and a you know, a colored piece of metal that you you buy and sell. Um, but earlier in my career, I was a real car fanatic. I really enjoyed cars, uh, various kinds, and I sort of lost that passion. I think through the years it became very much a business, and a business that I really enjoy and still love. But the actual cars themselves, I, I as of COVID and being sort of you know, just uh, you know just at home, not able to travel, not able to go anywhere, I ended up going online at Mecham and Barrett-Jackson buying cars. <laughs> and, uh, and you know. And then I, I found myself acquiring these vehicles, and I had nowhere to put them. So we uh, were renting space here, there, everywhere. And then I had in my head that I'd... Uh, and, and I found what happened was people would call me up knowing i have some of these vehicles, and they'd say, look, uh, I'd like to have a look. I'd like to bring my kids over. and." Have a look at some of these vehicles it's just people like looking at cars and uh then i had in my head well why don't i try to find somewhere where i can just you know uh, amalgamate all these cars put them in one warehouse somewhere and people can go look at them and that's really what happened so we uh we bought um, the the old go-kart indoor go-kart place in bears lake and uh it's thirty six thousand square feet we, we put a bunch of vehicles there and and it's sort of a, it's kind of evolving. We have a, we have, we, we created sort of an event space out there. I don't know if you've been out there, Don, but
0: uh, no. But uh, I heard about the event space. Somebody was telling me about it recently. They said it was fantastic.
2: Yeah. So we put a, we put a sound stage there, a the professional sound system. And we've had bands and uh, cars ever everywhere, and videos. And, you know, it's, uh, it's just kind of a fun space.
0: So just as an aside, uh, one of the things that Colin McDonald does is he, he displays his cars in the village of Chester every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he takes 15 or 20 of them. I've taken my grandkids there a couple of times. They really love it. So I'm, I'm taking them to your museum uh, yeah. over yeah. Christmas. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You'll like it. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, um,
1: I have a friend that, that actually um, collects old cars from Eastern Europe. It's kind of a weird occupation, but he has now 30 plus cars. From, uh, he goes to Germany and these places and, and recruits and, and buys these old cars. Um, anyway, a couple of years ago, you purchased a yacht once owned by Evil Knievel and spent quite a bit to restore it to its former glory. What what motivated you to buy that and, and what's the situation today?
2: <laughs> Jeez, you guys are covering all the angles here. Um, that was a, uh, that, that, um, I was actually looking for a boat, uh, and I was shot, boat shopping in Florida, and uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, I was working with a broker at the time, and uh, he was a guy from France, but he's he's he's, he's, uh, he's uh, he works uh, he's a broker in Florida, and uh, we went to look at this one particular boat, and uh, the boat that I uh, he was showing me I wasn't that interested in, but there is this. Old boat next to it um, that looked in really good shape, and I like kind of old classic things. They appealed to me. I had no idea about the Evil Knievel connection at all. Uh, I just liked the boat, and uh, I forget the name of the boat at the time. But I Googled it on my phone when I was there, and then the history of the boat came up, and it said that it was once owned by Evil Knievel. and uh, and I remember I said to the broker at the time. Nicholas was his name. I said, Well, I said, that boat apparently was owned by Evil Knievel. And of course, he goes, Well, who is Evil Knievel? <laughs> <laughs> Being from France, he didn't be, I guess he wasn't exposed to it the same as we were. I mean, we we're all, all of the benches that we were, you know, Evil Knievel back in the 70s was iconic. And, uh, you know, I remember as a kid, I mean, one of the original extreme sports people. And, and uh, you know, you'd, you'd be glued to the TV watching his as latest as antic, you know. Um, and uh, I was just really intrigued, one, with the boat, and now knowing it was oh, once owned by Evel Knievel, I became very interested in it, and uh, uh, it actually wasn't for sale. I called the owner and asked him if he'd sell it, and ultimately we ended up doing a deal. Yeah. It's but a so beautiful I've, boat. I've had yeah. a chance
0: to be on it, it and uh, it's really, it's been restored to, uh, you know, it really its former glory. It's a beautiful boat. Yeah. Um, Rob, you were inducted into the Nova Scotia Business Hall of Fame in 2018, I believe, uh, joining your father, who had been inducted earlier, in fact, in the inaugural year of the formation of the Business Hall of Fame. I wanted to ask you, how meaningful was that moment for you?
2: Uh, it was very meaningful. I, I was, uh, you know, it. Uh, I don't know how many fathers and sons there are in there. There are probably a couple now. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it's nice to be. Uh, be recognized certainly in that, you know, with the accomplishments that my dad had, and to sort of be along, you know, alongside with him, it was great.
0: Yeah. Just a few uh, final questions. Uh, Atlantic Canada has un- undergone really a bit of an economic transformation, revival in the last few years, driven largely by population growth, as you know. Uh, what impact has that? Uh, had uh, that revival had on your own business in in the region?
2: Oh, it's been very positive. Uh, Mm -hmm. there's more people coming here. I think, I think Halifax now is, uh, we've reached a half a million, I think, haven't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's very vibrant here. Of course, there's a lot of demand for cars, demand for housing, you know, it's created some, some, uh, you know, some, some headaches for, for, you know, for the, for the politicians, but it's, uh, managing this growth is, is tough sometimes. But ultimately, it'll be good because uh, we need people. We need more people in this region. So I'm um, mm-hmm. all for, for growth and integration. And, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it's an exciting place to be. Mm-hmm.
1: So just a final question, Rob. Um, looking ahead, what is your view of the future of Atlantic Canada? Are you bullish? Are you optimistic? Do you think we're going to continue to see population and economic growth? Or are you expecting us to revert back to our status as a declining region with an elderly population?
2: I, well, I hope the first, obviously. I'm, 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 a, I'm an optimist, and I, I do believe, I think, if we can get our house in order, and I say we, I mean as politically, uh, I think we're on, a, on the wrong path right now uh, with the current government and its economic plan. It's just not, it's not, I don't think it's very, uh, it's very, it's not, it's not viable. Um, uh, but I think it's the government, what's that?
0: Rob, uh, well, just to be clear, you're talking about the federal government, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Not, not, yeah. not provincial. Um, I'm talking about federal, yeah. And I think, uh, uh I, but look, the, the government's changed and, and, uh, and, uh, ultimately will rise to the occasion. There's a great, great economic opportunities in Canada, not just Atlanta, Canada, but there is obviously in Atlanta, Canada as well. Uh, and I can tell you from my point of view, there's no other place I'd rather be in Canada than right here in this part of the world. Um, it's, it's Location-wise, it's great. Um, you know, you can get to New York, you can get to Toronto, you can get over to Europe. Uh, it's a great launching uh, point uh, where we are geographically. It's a very desirable place uh, uh, to be. Uh, you know, we have our own natural beauty here that people are recognizing now. It's not a best-cast feature anymore. Um and uh, and I, you know I'm encouraged by the population growth, and, uh, and the diversity that you're seeing in the in the population here. Um, it's uh, you know it's adding it's uh, it's creating a lot of uh, 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 energy, and uh, and opportunity. Well, Rob, we
1: thank you so much for joining us today on the Insights podcast. We we love talking to successful and growing entrepreneurs based in our region. Uh, thank you for providing us an overview of your business and certainly of your father's legacy, um, exposing more and more people to, the, to in this region to his legacy, but also the work that you're doing. We wish you continued success.
2: Well Thank you, David. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks a lot, Rob. Hey okay, guys, you've been listening to the Insights podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David
1: will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.